Hey everybody, welcome to Trek in Time. This is the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. What we're doing is taking a look at each episode of Star Trek in chronological order, and we're also taking a look at how things were in the world at the time of the original broadcast. We'll take a deeper dive into each of the episodes or the era, whatever catches our eye. And who am I doing this talking? It's me, Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I read some sci-fi. I read some stuff for kids. And with me is my brother, Matt. He's the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I wasn't super duper crazy about the episode, but I think it has some interesting things to talk about. Yeah. And I've already given the spoiler about not being super crazy about the episode, but what episode am I talking about? I'm talking about the episode Vanishing Point. Matt, do you want to give us a lovely, brief, on-point synopsis from Wikipedia, which we had recently been saying just last week, it's almost as if somebody is going through and revising these before we get to them because they've been pretty good lately. And then we get to this one. (laughs) Matt? Here we go. Hoshi is on a away mission, which requires teleportation for evacuation. Hoshi is the communications officer aboard the starship NX-01 Enterprise on this television show set in the 22nd century of the Star Trek science fiction universe on this television show. I like that. Yes. The episode explores one of the classic staples of the Star Trek universe, a transporter gone wrong theme. Ensign Hoshi Sato passes through the transporter and finds that she is slowly disappearing. At the same time, she is the only person who can see aliens planting explosives in, a, in key ship systems with no way to warn the crew mm-hmm. on this television show. <laughs> yes. That's great. That's some good writing. I, right I think there. my favorite part, I think my favorite part is opening up with Hoshi's on an away mission. Oh, by the Who's way, Hoshi? Hoshi's the communications officer aboard this <laughs> starship, which is on this TV show. And I also like that it implies that. <laughs> The Star Trek science fiction universe has twenty second has a twenty second century. Not our universe or the universe in general, their universe. but just their yeah. universe. Yes. But enough of that. Wikipedia, as usual, you magnificent bastard, you're doing a great job. This episode <laughs> was directed by David Strayton. He also did the episode A Night in Sick Bay, which, from a directorial perspective, Matt and I both agreed was really done top notch. Mm-hmm. And this episode was written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga. It aired originally on November 27th, 2002. It had a viewership of about 3.7 million viewers, which was down by a million. But this is, let's all remember where we were on November 27th, 2002. Matt, I know you know where you were. Exactly where I was. That's right. It was the night before Thanksgiving. Viewership on television pretty much across the board is probably not going to be super duper high the night before Thanksgiving. So. We can forgive them for having lost a million viewers. And there's even a theory about this episode being dropped on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving that maybe they knew they didn't have the best episode. So they kind of pushed it in there to get it out of the way. What was the world like when this episode aired? Well, Matt, you were still trying to lose yourself with the song Lose Yourself by Eminem. This is, of course, his hit song from the movie Eight Mile, which had premiered two weeks earlier. So it took a couple of weeks for the song to take hold. But it is still a song that is recognizable. And given that we have the Super Bowl in the offing, and I believe Eminem is going to be part of the halftime show, wouldn't surprise me if we hear some of Lose Yourself 
mm-hmm. in that performance. The number one movie at the box office at the time was Die Another Day, which opened with $47 million. This marked James Bond's franchise 40th anniversary, and the film included references to each of the preceding films and featured Halle Berry as Jinx. And I've always been disappointed that the plans to create a Jinx spinoff film never happened. Never happened. And it happened because at this point, the production company and the producers behind the James Bond films decided they would effectively reboot the franchise. And of course, the movies that have come out since that reboot have been phenomenal. I would argue the best James Bond films around, but it is disappointing to know that Halle Berry was standing there waiting for a Jinx film, which I think could have been a lot of fun and a really great uh, addition to her very strong filmography. And as I mentioned, this was on television the day before Thanksgiving. And what else was on? The day before Thanksgiving? Well, this show was struggling with its viewership, but not all the shows that were opposite would have struggled with their viewership, including Survivor, which had 12 million viewers. The Bernie Mac show had 7 million viewers, so twice as many as Enterprise. The show Birds of Prey had almost as many viewers as Enterprise. It was just able to beat it. And when I read that Birds of Prey was in Almost close contention. I forgot that Birds of Prey was even a thing. I forgot about Birds of Prey completely. Yes. (laughs) Wow. And then there's this little nugget. The TV special, Tim McGraw, Sing Me Home. Yes, Tim McGraw got 10 million viewers. So Of course he did. But other than Birds of Prey, what was Enterprise able to beat? Well, there was a Candid Camera episode, which only got 800,000 viewers. So... They beat Take that, that candid camera. That's right. <laughs> but the number one show that week, everybody loves Raymond. And I don't say that as a statement. I say that as the title of the show. Everybody loves Raymond had 20 million viewers. The number one show that week. And in the news from the New York Times on this day, the day before Thanksgiving 2002, a new federal rule tightens demands on failing schools. Children attending public schools deemed failing under a new federal law have to be offered transfers to better schools, regardless of whether those schools are already full, according to final regulations released today by the Federal Election Department. The new regulations, which are more stringent than expected, could leave hundreds of districts scrambling for alternative places for children who want to transfer out of poorly functioning schools. This was part of the No Child Left Behind Act. This is something that is still causing some consternation in various places around the country. And it is a rule that has led to testing at schools, which I can tell you from personal experience in my household with my child, those tests confuse the kids. So, (laughs) but on to the episode, Matt, big picture. How did you feel about this? I've already given my thoughts about what was going on, but what did you think? Overall, I did like it, even though as we'll discuss coming up, There were some significant issues I had problems with, but on the whole, I was entertained. Mm. (laughs) Not a, not high praise, but I was entertained. (laughs) Right. So the episode centers around as Wikipedia is already sussed out. Hoshi is involved in a transporter accident. She and commander Tucker are on an away mission. They are on a planet deep in a cave and they are studying iconography which has been left behind in the cave and trying to decipher it what i really liked about this moment 
is there is no way in the world that any explorer upon first finding of iconography in a cave that is thousands of years old from a culture they have no experience with on literally an alien planet. Mm-hmm. I don't care who ho she is. The idea that she is standing there trying to quote decipher these is ridiculous. It could have been far simpler just to say they're taking lots of pictures and they're doing lots of studies and research. No, Sean, don't you have make to do it real time. You have to do it in real time. You don't cannot make do it, it back a, on the ship. Don't make it. Don't make it goofy to the point yeah. of uh, we want to decipher these. So let's send our communications officer and our chief engineer. Yep. Makes perfect sense. Trip anyway, never been down there. I will push that to the side. And simply say, while they're on the planet, a massive storm pops out of nowhere. I did like this element of this episode that the, and it's, it's effectively, it's, it's a thrown away thing. It is, it's a, a plot element mainly to put them in danger, to yep. cause the issue, to get them in a hurry to get off the planet. But I like the idea that they are on a planet which is, has an extremely turbulent atmosphere that they are not accustomed to. And the speed with which the storm pops up and then redirects another storm right toward their location, mm-hmm. I thought was something that Star Trek doesn't really throw at the end of the stories often enough. I mean, a, a straightforward survival story at this point, I thought would have been fascinating. Like a storm comes out of nowhere and they literally are in a position where they have to try and survive. And I had forgotten about this episode. So at this point, when the storm pops up, They're told by the ship, you guys got to get back. And they make the argument, well, this cave is actually very, very deep, and it's possible that we could be safe here. I envisioned where the show was going to go. It's going to be the two of them going deeper into the cave, trying to survive. And Hoshi would, over time, begin to decipher some of the iconography in ways that would help them survive. That would have been a more interesting storyline, but it's also something they kind of did in season one when they yeah they kind of did. They took refuge in a cave, but they, yeah. it was the element of her doing her job in order yeah. to get them out of trouble, I thought would have been where the story was going. It is not where it headed. Where it headed instead was, well, we need to get back to the shuttlecraft. No, you're not going to make it in time. And taking off in this storm is going to be next to impossible. We're going to use the transporter. Matt and I were literally last week saying, the show seems to have largely forgotten, forgotten that they the have a transporter. And I find it a little disappointing that the first time they remember they have a transporter, the transporter is the entire point of the story instead of it just being a tool on the ship. The one thing I will say about this one, as we're going to discuss, the fact that the transporter is still so new and everybody's so afraid of it. Yes. Does kind of remind you why they didn't jump straight to the transporter in that previous episode. But given how bad things were going in the previous episode, somebody should have said, Hey guys, what about yeah. that transporter? Yeah. Uh, the fact they didn't is still inexcusable. But I did like yeah. how they hammered the point home of this is everybody's terrified of this thing. Nobody yeah. wants to go through it. I'm fine with them being terrified of it. I'm, I'm fine with them saying, like, nobody wants to go through it. Yeah. The times that they've forgotten about it have also been at times when it would have literally been inanimate objects being like a transporter. Yeah. So like, like a communicator. So it's like that, that becomes the problem, but they end up reluctantly agreeing that they need to use the transporter and Tucker has to offer to go first because Hoshi is so nervous about the idea of being transported. He goes first, she goes second, she arrives and things seem to be fine. 
they've gotten off the planet. It is not too long, though, before we begin to see that Hoshi's experience has had a some kind of impact, which she is interpreting as something has changed. She doesn't feel right. She doesn't feel like herself. At this point, the episode becomes a little bit of a psychological examination toying with is something legitimately happening to her or is she simply experiencing something which is psychologically based? This goes back to like what you've talked about in numerous episodes. It's a horror movie. This is a horror movie. It's like body horror. It's like, is she going insane or is this actually happening to her? And if it's actually happening to her, oh my God, how do you fix this? It's like that whole juxtaposition of those two things. It's really terrifying. And yeah. I, I personally, I don't think they play that up enough in this episode. They could have gone harder at the, is it happening or is it just in her head? They could have played that harder. It was a little too right. fast and loose for my taste. Well, I think to allow us to discuss the episode in the way that I think we want to, I think that just a very, very condensed synopsis of the overall episode Okay. Get us out of the way of the plot elements so that we can get into the discussion. And so effectively, she is experiencing feeling like something is not right, including feeling like she's seeing a birthmark on her face seems to have moved. She's concerned that at a molecular level, something has changed. She goes. There are, mo- there are moments where people don't seem to be seeing her or hearing right. her when she's talking to them directly. It's and those situations are always a little bit uneasy to interpret. It's a Mm -hmm. crowded room. She walks up to a table where T'Pol is reading. She walks up to a table where a bunch of people are engaged in conversation. Are they simply caught up with each other or are they not, in fact, seeing her? She goes to the doctor. She complains to the doctor who is very quick to dismiss it as psychological nervousness. She moves then further into experiences which begin to be doors won't open for her. She finally is in a moment with Trip where she is in an exercise room and they have, it's again, one of those moments where they put something into an episode where you think, wow, they really spent a lot of money to put that in the show. Are you talking about the spinning thing that Trip is in? Yeah, Trip is put inside a centrifuge sort of exercise device which it's like that wouldn't be any kind of exercise yeah (laughs) that's an entertainment ride (laughs) that's an entertainment ride and it spins in all three axes so he is effectively spinning in every direction based on how he shifts his body weight exercise okay i guess meanwhile she's trying to use the free weights and it's in this room that she has now the first experience of actually her hand moving through matter. She has the difficulty of actually grasping things. Earlier on, she was trying to take a shower. She got lost in her reflection. She, she sees herself become transparent. So now she is having, it's gone beyond a guessing game of is something happening? We as the viewer are privy to her experience. So we give it the legitimacy of an objective observer. It is happening. She's having difficulty trans, she's having trouble communicating this to the people around her. While she's, also, that she's also having she's also having lost time where she will wake up and she's you know two hours late for a crew duty her sh- yes her, her shift her her shift and she is also struggling with work yep. and this is the through line that i think is the most intriguing about this and i wish it had been 
I'm not quite sure in what ways it could have been magnified or if it needed to be magnified, but I looked at this as a the metaphor being a woman in the workplace, a woman in the world is experiencing dismissal mm-hmm. and it being largely a a story exploring how women are ignored. Mm-hmm. She is put in a position where at work she's not able to do her job. Again, it's about communication. She's having trouble communicating with the people around her. It includes trying to communicate in this story. When she comes late to work, she discovers that there's a ter- there's a hostage situation. The planet where they had been, she and Trip had been, it turns out is supposedly not uninhabited. There are people there who have now taken hostages as a way of trying to get back the honor of the place that was desecrated. So she's made mistakes at work. She can't communicate with these aliens. They get angrier and and more aggressive in their communications, but they don't understand what is being said. So she's a failure at work. She is replaced by a man. She goes to a doctor. And this is an experience that I know women in my own life have explained that they are ignored by male doctors. So she goes to a doctor. She complains about a problem. He dismisses the problem. She complains to friends. Most of them are male. They dismiss her concerns. She is dismissed Everybody left keeps and saying, right. sleep it off. I love that every recommendation is just go to bed and sleep yes. it off. I love that everybody is saying that to her. Everything is about you are simply <laughs> manufacturing. It's all in your head. And that yep. is a kind of dismissal that I have heard female friends and family members say to me, as a woman in the world, you get told constantly that you are manufacturing things, that they are not true. So I think that that is what is, that is the heart of the episode for me. And I think it's a fascinating way of depicting it to, to mm-hmm. have it be this experience. Toward the end of the episode, now the introduction of aliens aboard the ship mm-hmm. that are nefariously plotting against them. And this is where it becomes, it's the classic, it, we've seen this in Trek before, of, and we've seen it, in fact, this season before. It's, there are aliens aboard the ship, they're going to do bad things, and only one person can stop them. Only one person is aware that they are there. We had the episode with the Ferengi who took over the ship, and we had Trip running around trying to figure out what to do. In this, it's a couple of aliens who are apparently as out of phase as Hoshi is experiencing herself so that she is now invisible and she is following members of the crew around. There are moments which are, I think, intriguing moments of story with her being in the Jeffrey's tube when what they think are her remains are found. Mm -hmm. And you see Trip begin to basically bemoan I didn't do my job as her commander. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see the doctor saying, I didn't take her seriously until I looked more closely at the numbers and I realized that there is a molecular degeneration taking place and I, I didn't look for it early enough. So she is seeing people mourn her loss. But at a certain point, the danger to the ship, the aliens aboard the ship, the mourning crew members, all of that is undone in a moment when the heightened tension of how do you keep the explosives that have been planted on the ship from blowing up. And she stands on a transporter pad left behind by the aliens. And then she rematerializes on the enterprise. This is, this is my biggest problem with the episode right there. And that for me is the moment where 
I'm left with dissatisfaction because my interpretation of the show about this being a metaphor for a woman's experience with the world, that it being a metaphor of being dismissed and her having to push through that and fight back against that. The end of the show literally does make it all about it was in her head. Yep. It was all in her experience. And, and it leaves, it's like hearing a whoopee cushion (laughs) at the end of the episode where the entire episode is apparently takes place over like a 10 minute period. No, it's a couple because minutes. It's literally a couple minutes. It's like they say it's, it's like two minutes that it took her took them to get her out or something like that. No, I mean, I'm including the entire episode, meaning like the five minutes on the planet. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the entirety of this episode is they're on the planet, they're in danger, they got to get out, they get in the transporter. She's caught in a, in a loop, a buffer, until they're finally able to rematerialize her. Yes. And her entire experience was just manufactured in her head. And I'm left going... You just took the character of Hoshi and revealed that she is in some way just wrong. She is just weak psychologically to the point where she it's presenting the idea that she is on a certain level so unsure of herself that she thinks that she could be replaced in a heartbeat, that she can't really do her job, that her crewmates don't actually listen to her. And I felt so bad for her at the end of the episode. Yes. That's just unfair. Well, okay. So there's two things here that fits with her character though. From the first episode, she's very unsure of herself. She's afraid of everything. So it's playing into the things that we already know about Hoshi. I agree with everything you said. It's unfair to the way they treat the character at the end. For me, my biggest issue with that reveal at the end was from a viewer's point of view, you lied to me for 40 minutes. Yeah. You lied to me for 40 minutes and you made me think this is about one thing. And then at the end, your twist is, hey, we've been lying to you for 40 minutes. That was not a satisfying thing for me as a viewer, let alone her as a character. And that's really weak storytelling. And what got my hopes up at the beginning of the episode to kind of go back, the first scene they have with her after she's being backed on board and she's in a very crowded uh, dinner scene. It's the very first dinner scene. And she goes up and says something to the table full of her friends and they're not hearing her. That entire first dinner scene, I don't know if this is going to filmmaking a little bit. It looked like they filmed that entire scene with a very long lens, like a telephoto lens. And by doing that, what that does is you can get nice mid shots and the background is very compressed. So it, mm-hmm. it doesn't look like a big wide expanse of room. It makes the room feel narrower and more claustrophobic. And it makes the room feel more packed with people than mm-hmm. it actually was. So that entire dinner scene was, I thought, I was like, oh, wow, this is like, that's some clever filmmaking because it's making this room feel very off from what we normally see, which is with a wider lens. So it's making everything feel a little weird. And I thought, okay, are we going like the David Cronenberg style filmmaking here where it's going to get a little weirder and weirder over the course of the episode? Like as it's more like a dream sequence she's having, especially with those lost time moments where she's like waking up. It's like a stress dream. It's like, yeah you'll suddenly change scenes in your dream and suddenly it's like, oh, you're late for work or you're late for class or it's all that kind of stuff. It was like a fever dream for her. Yeah. But the way they filmed it went more back to a traditional way of filming an episode. So here's this dinner scene where it's like, oh, they're going to start doing something different with the filmmaking to make it feel a little off. And they just kind of went back to the way they always film episodes and it started to feel more honest in its storytelling. So you start to see it from her perspective completely and you start to believe what's happening to her is actually happening. 
And so they're just lying to you over the course yeah. of the entire episode. It was just, it's like they started in a good place and then they kind of gave up after the dinner scene and was like, eh, let's just do a normal episode. It's what it yeah. felt like to me from a filmmaking point of view. So I felt For, lied to at the end. Yeah. So you're right about them treating Hoshi poorly. And what you talked about is like a woman not feeling heard. I agree with that, but that's also a universal. It's like, there's been times in my life and career where you'll say something in a room to, you know, about like something we sh you should do for your business. And then people just don't listen to it. And they just go on as if you didn't say anything. It's like, what? I just, you're not even going to address my idea. And then right. 10 minutes later, somebody else brings up that exact idea. Like it was their idea. And I was like, I just said that 10 minutes ago. And now you're acting like it's your idea. <laughs> it's like, what's going on here? So it's like, it taps into something all of us have experienced in our lives, which is a nice universal, even though it's your point is true where it's, it's coming from the point of view of a woman, but there is relatability no matter who you are. So it's, it's really cool how it was playing with the dreams. It was playing with that, that aspect of it, what they could have done, but they just yeah. dropped the ball from a filmmaking point of view. And they should have gone more yeah. Cronenberg in my opinion and made it a little I agree. If, if they had gone, the episode. Yeah. If it had reached a point where the weirdness had been building, building over time, and she had still been struggling from a realist perspective of trying Correct. to work within that context, it would have become more, we as the viewer would have been aware of the dissonance before Correct. she would be. And then that would also give her the opportunity to grow as a character, because that's yes. one of the things that this doesn't do at all. It doesn't allow for any character growth whatsoever. She starts doing things within her dream world but it's all the rug is pulled out from underneath her because mm -hmm. she thinks she's legitimately having to save the ship. And the fact that within a dream, she starts to act heroically doesn't matter because when you wake up, you're back to being who you were when you went to sleep mm -hmm. for her to have a character transition would have been for her to be in that nether world, recognize, wait a minute, this isn't real. Yes. Something is happening here. I need to figure out what it is. And for her to be going through the acts, not to fight off the alien invasion and the destruction of the enterprise, but to do things that would fit within her understanding of I'm trapped in something. Something is out. going on to yes. me. I've got to get out, yes. which wouldn't it have been interesting if it had been her fantasy in fighting off the aliens was successful. And then she realizes, wait a minute, I need to destroy this reality to get out of it. And if she goes through the purpose of now rearming the explosives and being surrounded by the crew that she loves and trusts and having to, in that moment, say, I know that this is not real and blowing up the enterprise herself and then rematerializing on that mm -hmm. platform. Now she's gone through a transition of, I don't feel heard. I don't feel respected. I suddenly feel like I'm having to be heroic and save everybody and then move beyond that to the point of understanding a bigger perspective of the world around me and knowing that it's not true. Yep. That would have been, and it also would have put then the audience in a perspective of, oh my God, what if she's wrong? Right. Because in that moment of her saying like, I think I need to destroy this enterprise, that would put the audience members in the perspective of what if she's not actually right? And there could have been things done that could have teased out the idea of that as well. And it would have created a much more interesting tension. It reminds me of the episode from Next Generation with Dr. Crusher, where she is ineffectively a warp bubble. I had, to, I had that in my notes. Yep. As the warp bubble is shrinking and she over time is having to use her scientific approach to figuring out 
what is happening? Why are there disappearances? What is going on? And it was the technological mixed with the psychological. It is the warp bubble and her psychological response to the world is combined to give her this universe. Could have done the same thing here. Hoshi could have been experiencing something that she could have deciphered and understood in a way, but they didn't tease that out. This comes back to the whole that we've said this numerous times in episodes that we kind of bag on. There are previous series that have done the same plot line way better. And that episode I had written in my notes, that Dr. Crusher episode was basically this done better. It was her feeling like it was real in the beginning. She realizes it's not real and that she's the one that's alone and is trying to find her way out. And it's like, that's exactly what they should have done with Hoshi here. And it's a stronger character building episode. But like I said to you before, there are elements in this that I liked and that weird thing that Trip was on. It's like that to me, if they had played that up, that's like, we've never seen that before and we will never see that again because it was in her mind. It's like, something weird that's off. Like, like they should have leaned into that more, which is why I said the Cronenberg thing. It's like, what the hell is trip on? It's like, it's like yeah. the fact that she could have maybe done a double take and been like, something's not right here. And he's just on that yeah. thing going around. It's like, yeah. they could have leaned into her questioning of like, I don't remember that kind of. Yeah. Have what that is that? Kind of, like, what right. is that? Yeah, exactly. So if she starts noticing more and more of that, like when she's in the She's in the captain's room when <laughs> it's ready room when she calls, he calls her dad to break the news to her, to yeah. him. That entire conversation, if you just look at that just on its own, it is the conversation the, is awful. It's it is horrendous. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. But it felt like they were trying to do something deliberately because the captain yes. would never be lost for words like that. He never yeah. would be. He would be, he's so professional. But he's he is bumbling. So lost for words. He's bumbling yes. over telling her father that he's dead. And I wanted to point out that that's guest star Keon Young, who is, he's a great actor. He's done voices for characters in Star Wars. Uh, He was in the series Deadwood playing a character named Wu who ran a brothel that was near one of the main characters bars. And he is an accomplished actor. He is very, very good. The depiction of Hoshi's father in this, it's painful to watch because it is so awkwardly written is so intentionally awkward but if you know that it's a if as a viewer at that point at that point as a viewer we should have known this isn't really happening and so then that scene could have been filmed in a slightly different way that would have given it a different weight of this is all in her head and it's bizarre and yoshi could have been like getting really discombobulated and been like this isn't this doesn't seem right so it's like if they had leaned into that more it would have made it much stronger and given yeah. her a chance to kind of step out. Again, with the Cronenberg elements, it could have been something along the lines of her father in that could have been her memory of her father, which could be a kind of all ages father where yeah. he's too young. And yes. she's looking at this as just like, my God, he looks great. How is that? How's How is this that possible? possible? And it's right after that scene Another one of the elements of this episode that I really, really loved was her using Morse code by putting her hand into mm-hmm. the uh, a, a junction box in the captain's ready room mm-hmm. and breaking the electromagnetic conductivity in there so that a light blinks and she's communicating using Morse code and nothing came of that it was seen and it became a moment of like is she going to have a 
the communication? Is she going to be able to communicate with them? And she is, but she also isn't because they reach a point of something, something weird is going on. We'll just have the engineer look at it later. And then they leave. I was disappointed by things like that, like a, a brilliant moment, a brilliant idea in that moment. And I wanted to see her walk out of that room and say, well, I know I can do that. So I'll do it elsewhere. I'll find the right person to talk to. And if mm -hmm. she eventually reaches the point of none of these people are actually the sophisticated three-dimensional people that I know, right. that becomes then a doorway for her to go through to recognize where she actually is. Exactly. All in all, I would say that for me, this episode was like a, a C, a C plus. It yeah. felt like I didn't hate it as I was watching it. I found enough for me to want to continue to watch it. But at the end of it, again, the whoopee cushion sound at yeah. the end. Like, like I felt like I was biting into a hamburger, but I bit into a whoopee cushion. And like, oh, so this is the character is no different than it was when she started. And she, the entire thing was a matter of minutes. And the storytelling was effectively withholding all of this from me as if they were doing a twilight zone, but playing by star Trek rules. And that felt, yeah, it's, I would have given it a C plus or a B minus if I was being super generous. So I'm in the same kind of space of, I was entertained. It didn't make me ungodly angry. <laughs> when I was finishing yeah. the episode. I was just disappointed that they had the potential of a really great episode and just kind of tripped themselves up. And, I agree. and to kind of, can I bring up a couple of the comments we got from our previous episode right. or two episodes ago that are related directly to the transporter, which I thought would be perfect to talk about. They were from the episode, the communicator, which was season two, episode eight, where they lost the communicator and never, <laughs> never even thought to use trans to yeah. the teleporter to bring it back. There's a comment from Mako who said the transporter, as it's described in Star Trek is a frightening idea since you're essentially killed then your molecules are reconstructed at another place. The new you is not the same you from before. Essentially, every time you die and a clone is made of you, maybe I don't understand it properly, which then Pale Ghost 69 responded to, and I love, love this. It gets really philosophical. It's right up your alley, Sean. Mm -hmm. How is that any different than normal? Our atoms have been ripped apart and reassembled countless thousands of times. Every two weeks or so, you're literally not the same you as before. It's the ship of thesis dilemma. It also brings to question, what are you? Aren't we just a collection of cells that uses electricity and growth patterns to store thoughts, memories, brain patterns, neurons? If we were made an exact clone of you at this point in time, copying your exact atomic positioning, spin, signals, and all, would that clone not be you? Would you be you? And he just went on. It's a great comment to read. It's like, it just goes, they, they had a nice little conversation about teleporters are terrifying. And it's yes. like our understanding, if we ever make this a reality, the character's discomfort with the teleporter is warranted because it is yes. crazy weird. You're literally being torn apart and then just made anew when yeah. you're built in the other place. Yes, it's an exact copy and the old copy no longer exists. So you are technically still you. Yeah. I mean, the timeline of you still is there, but it's technically not you anymore. It's like, right. it's a real... I don't want to swear, but it's like, it's you a start, real yeah. mind messing. It's a mind, it's yeah. a mind fudge. It's, yes. and <laughs> it's, you know, from a quantum perspective, matter is just energy that is not experienced by us as energy. 
it's experienced yeah. by us as matter. So from a certain perspective, transporter technology is taking something that is energy, moving it via energy to another location. So we are effectively just clouds of energy that are being taken apart and put back together in various states yep. Yep. surrounded by other clouds of energy. So yeah, A plus to Pale Ghost. And yes. I am reminded of two things, a book about the philosophy of Star Trek and which there is a chapter that is dedicated to transporters and what do they mean philosophically. Mm -hmm. And I'm also reminded of the episode from Next Generation. I don't recall the title of the episode off the top of my head, but it's the episode in which they discover a copy of Riker who, due to a transporter accident yes. years yes. earlier, a Riker beamed out safely and a Riker rematerialized in an asteroid space station and had stayed there for eight years. And so when they discover him, they effectively now have two Rikers who is one of them the original. There is no original when you're talking transporter. It's one of them more Riker than the other. <laughs> right. Can they both do the Riker maneuvers, swiveling their That's leg right. over the chair and sitting down? That's right. Do they both have back problems? <laughs> it's... There is also one other comment I wanted to bring up. Every episode, you close out by saying, and if we got something wrong, let us know. Well, guess what, mm. Sean? You got Did something we? wrong, and Robotraff pointed it out. In that same episode of The Communicator, he wrote, okay, Sean's, sorry, I just can't let you get away with the Commander O'Brien. He was too proud to be a chief. He was, he was too proud to be a chief and refused to be called sir. He was an enlisted man through and through, never an officer. He was Chief right. O'Brien. Chief O'Brien. <laughs> and that reminds me of another thing I want to bring up as a result of this transporter focused episode. Yeah. Uh, everybody should look for Chief O'Brien at work. It's a comic strip that is focused on Chief O'Brien in the transporter room. It is very much a deep philosophical dive into a sad and lonely man whose only job <laughs> is to stand in the enterprise in an empty room and wait for somebody to maybe need him. And yeah. it is very funny. So take a look for that. In the meantime, as Matt just pointed out, we're open to being corrected. I made a terrible mistake by giving O'Brien an unwanted promotion. Mm -hmm. Reach out to us. Let us know. And if you have any comments about this episode, let us know. You can find the contact information in the podcast notes or on YouTube. You can just scroll directly beneath the video. Matt, before we sign off, is there anything you want to remind our listeners about? What do you have coming up on your other channel? Oh, so much stuff coming up on my other channel. I have a video coming up on my experiences with my Tesla power wall and being part of a virtual power plant system, small modular nuclear reactors. There's a bunch of really interesting episodes coming up over the next couple of weeks. So be sure to check that out. That's great. As for me, please feel free to check out my website, seanferrell.com. You can also look for my books on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or other non-mega bookstores. You can find me at your local bookstore or your local library. A reminder, you can visit trekintime.show. You can directly support the podcast there. And as usual, let us know in the comments what you think. Did you agree with our analysis that this episode kind of ended with a whoopee cushion? Or did you think it was, it was something altogether different from our experience? Let us know in the comments. Please remember to subscribe, like the episode, and share it widely with friends and strangers. And do come back next time. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.